Hey guys, today we have one of my all-time favorite people on the planet here on the show, John Karabi. He's a super talented musician, great guy, and super entertaining guest. He's got a new book out now called Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. It's really entertaining stuff. Even if you're just a casual rock fan, I think this is a great read. It's on par with the Motley Crue book, The Dirt. And we're just going to scratch the surface on a few things in this interview, including his opinion of seeing Motley live with Vince, being at the Viper Room the day River Phoenix died, making out with Sandra Bullock, and more. Stay right there. Okay, so first question. Thing that I, re- I read your book. The book is amazing. Everyone needs to go out and fucking buy it. Even if they're not a hardcore fan of you like I am, like it's just there's so many good rock and roll stories. But the the qu- first question, payment for the book, the dirt, the other book that you're in, you only asked for signed copies. But what do you think that you could have got for that one? Do you th- could you have gotten like one percent of everything that thing made, or did they make an offer at all? No, they. I mean, they offered to pay me, but I I just I just kind of. You know, I was like, eh, no, nah, just, you know, give me 12 copies of the book and have the other three guys sign it or four to have them sign it. And I literally just wanted like 10 or 12 copies of the book. So I could give one to my son, one to my dad, one to a few friends, my wife, whatever. And, um, you know, unfortunately it didn't happen. So, um, once again, I, I negotiated something with Motley's management and they didn't follow through with it. So you know, it is what it is. Okay. So that, I was just curious about that. Cause I was like, dude, if you even, you got like 1% of everything, the book and the movie and all that stuff, that, that would have been a lot of money. Right. Hello. You froze. Yeah. Well, that's, that's account. My accountant always tells me to keep my mouth shut when it comes to negotiating. Cause I'm the guy that goes, Oh, how much do you want for those boots? Oh, 150. Okay, my my bottom offers two hundred. Um, so she goes, yeah, your negotiating skills are fucking horrible. So just <laughs> your fucking mouth shut. <laughs> right. So one thing I noticed throughout, like, and I've listened to a lot of interviews with you too. You know, you've been on my show. I throughout the book, I'm everything I've known about you. I always think like this is you're a good guy. Like you're always a good guy. You're kind. You're nice. You're always trying to do the right thing. Trying to help people. The only part in the book that shocked me that I thought that it seemed out of character for you is when you go to see the crew with, with Vince for the first time and you're backstage with Tommy and he asks, Hey, what'd you think of the show? And you said, I think you flown, you phoned it in and Aerosmith blew you off the stage. Do you think on a subconscious level, maybe you did that? I don't think you did it on purpose, but do you think maybe subconsciously that was your kind of like revenge for like them kicking you out of the band and kind of kicking you to the curb. And this is your way of saying, fuck you. You sucked. No, I no, because Tommy said to me, he said to me, what did you because I you have to remember, I had never seen Motley before I joined the band. Obviously, I see them when I was in the band because I was part of the band. Right. And so he sent me. uh, He I think Tommy texted me and sent me tickets to their they were playing at the Hollywood Bowl. And. uh you know, he was throwing sticks at me while he was on stage. I, he was kidding with me the whole time. I went backstage and I saw uh, Nikki and Mick and my 
you know, saw everybody. And I went in to Tommy's dressing room and Tommy gave me a hug. And he said, what did you think? And I was like, oh, you know, and he said, dude, honestly, what did you think? And I was like, I, I mean, I was a little nervous about saying it, but I said, listen, dude, like, you know, you had flamethrowers and midgets and like all this other stuff. And you guys just seemed like you phoned it in. I was looking around the audience as well. And I was seeing people like literally get up to go buy a beer. Like they, it was just, it was just a weird night. Huh. I said to him, I think you guys phoned it in and a bunch of 70 year olds just walked on stage and handed you guys your ass on a platter. And I stand by that today. Aerosmith came out on stage with just a row of amps. They had nothing, no pyro. It was just lights and, and the guys kicking ass and they were fucking amazing. And so he asked, I, and I told him, uh, but don't you, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you. You have your right to have your opinion. Absolutely. But don't you think he didn't really want to hear that? I mean, it's kind of like when your, your wife or your girlfriend says, do I look fat in these pants? You don't actually tell them they look fat in the pants. Like you say, no, you look beautiful, honey. No, but see, that's the difference. I'm not, I, I really don't give a shit. If <laughs> ask me a question, you know, it, it's, it's funny. Like even still to this day, like I have bands that'll send me a track or send me a song and they go, Hey man, what did you think? And I, I just had a buddy of mine do it a couple, like a week ago. Um, he sent me a track um, and he said, Hey, I would really like your opinion on this. And he sent me the track and I was listening to it and I thought it was a good song, but I, he, he said, you know, any feedback? And I go, are you going to feel weird about this? And he said, no, I said, I think the intro is too long. I think you need to cut the intro back a little bit and you need to get to the fucking vocals way sooner. And he was like, huh, he didn't take any, he didn't take anything. And even my wife, um, if my wife said to me, Hey, do these pants make me look fat? I wouldn't say yes, but I would figure out another way to say, maybe you should wear that other dress that you or those other pants because they, you, you look fucking awesome in them. The last time I saw, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, again, like if you ask me a question and tell me to be honest, like normally if I would Tommy ask me, Hey, how did we sound? I would have just went, yeah, it was cool, dude. You know what I mean? I wouldn't, but he said, be blunt, be honest. And I fucking told him. <laughs> okay. Well, he did kind of ask for it there. Yeah. So now, now you also said, I think I heard this, this was not in the book, but I heard you say in an interview that, that you were upset with Nikki and Tommy because when you texted them about the issue with your son, where your son was having some drug issues, you texted them because they're Motley crew. They know about drugs. They went through that stuff and they did not respond. 
Do you think that upset you? Do you think, though, that maybe I mean, I don't know what it's like to be at Motley Crue. Like how many texts, phone calls, emails and things do they get? I mean, do you think they just didn't even see it or they just got bombarded and forgot about it? Don't know. It doesn't matter to me. Um, the bottom line of it is. Um, um, now, now, look, at the end of the day, Tommy and I are fine. Tommy still texts me. Mm-hmm. Text, he we contact each other on Instagram, but I didn't do anything until Tommy reached out to me first and, you know, and said, Hey, crab, how you been? Blah, 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 whatever. Or I posted something and he made a comment about it. And then I, and then I reached out. I wasn't mad at them. I was a little disappointed in the fact that if you want to be upset with me, awesome. I, you know, say la vie, but you watched my kid grow up. Um, I reached out to them. I did not ask them for money. I did not ask them for anything. What I asked them for was, Hey, you guys have dealt with heroin addiction. How do I handle this? I got nothing from Nikki at all. No response, no nothing. And Tommy just wrote back, he just wrote back one word. He just said, it like, wasn't like, oh shit, dude, sorry. Like, fuck, are you kidding me? Ian's taking drugs, you know, blah, blah, nothing. He just wrote rehab. No, like rehab, uh, you know, good luck, Tommy. No, like nothing. He just wrote rehab, send. Hmm. And I was just like, man, how like, you know, especially I was, I was a little bummed out with Tommy because Tommy's the one that got Ian his first drum set. Tommy's the one that Ian looked, he looked up to. Um, And I just said, you know what? I have reached out to those guys on multiple occasions. Um, I reached out to Nikki when he divorced Donna DiArico. Um, I reached out to Tommy when the kid died in his pool. I reached out to Tommy when he went to prison I reached out to Tommy, you know, and all those guys multiple times, and I never got a response. And, but I, I thought maybe if they realized that there was something wrong with my son, they would just go, Hey dude, here, like, uh, call this counselor or, Hey, this guy's a really good counselor. Here's, Mm -hmm. he can help you figure it out. Um, they didn't respond. Okay. Say la vie. I just said, fuck it, whatever. I'm not, I'm done with those guys. I'm, I, I won't ever bother them again. I won't ever call them again. I won't forget it. Um, but now it was funny. I talked to another gentleman uh, named Gary Corbett, who was the keyboard player, Cinderella for, and I knew Gary, but I didn't really know him, know him. Um, I called Gary because Gary had also had some issues in the past with drugs. And I reached out to Gary and I said, I told him what happened. I said, Hey, my son's shooting heroin. He was coming, coming out to Nashville. He wants to get his life together. And Gary Corbett was at my house an hour later with a package full of these things called uh, it was called Suboxone. It's an opiate blocker. He told me how to distribute it to Ian. He told me if I need anything, please give him a call. 
he was so supportive and he, he had never even met Ian and I had only met him a few times, like on tours. Um, but at least he reached out to me. He was literally at my house in an hour and willing to help out. And that I will never forget. Now we all know Gary has since passed on. Yeah. I'll get it. I will never forget the fact that I asked my, what I thought were my friends to help me out. Not even with money. Hey, do you have a phone number for a counselor or something that I could reach out to? And I didn't get anything. So I'm like, all right, whatever. It is what it is, dude. Like, you know, I'm not angry about it, but I, I just, I have like, I have a very good long memory. You know what I mean? So it is what it is. You know, I, I kind of figured out like I can, I can write to Tommy. I will never bring it up. Hey, how's it going? How's your wife? You know? And I, if you remember, I even kind of went to bat with, for him on the Tommy and Tommy show. I love Tommy. Um, you know, and, but we, you know, listen, we're, we're all like brothers. We love each other. We hate each other, you know, (laughs) whatever it is. Um, but you know, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Okay. So that's with those guys. And then you and Mick are cool and, and, and all that. And then, but the thing with Vince Neil, that is so puzzling. I mean, it starts off good that, you know, you guys are kind of, you're basically cool. You're friends. You even talk about doing a tour together, which I'd fucking go see. I think it'd be amazing. But then years later you see him and he, now there's, I think it's one of four things that happens. Either he doesn't recognize you. He was pretending he didn't know you or he was so high or fucked up that he didn't know what the hell was going on. Or the last thing, which I hope this is not what's going on. I hope it's not a case of like the David Cassidy thing where he just drank so much that he got like dementia or whatever. What do you think it was? I'm going to go with one and three. You know what I mean? I think he, you know, he didn't, it didn't click right away, but he was also, he was also a little inebriated. Um, Okay. We were at a, a, you know, Sammy Hager was doing this beach bash out in uh, Huntington Beach. And, uh, you know, there was definitely some partying going on uh, with all of us. I mean, I remember Sammy's people. I had my coach there right next to um, Sammy's liquor company. They had a coach. So I literally, my wife and I drove across country for the thing. We were hanging out. My manager was involved in the concert. So we went out, we were hanging. It was just, just to go have a fun weekend. And, um, you know, I, I know at one point Sammy's people came, came over and, and loaded my coach up with this Santos, um, mezcal tequila that he was, he was promoting. So I'm sure there was some drinking involved as well. And Vince, it didn't, it just didn't click. Um, you know, I don't hold it against Vince. Uh, last year when we did the monsters on the mountain thing, obviously when Vince fell off stage, Mm. um, I went the next day, uh, slaughter was playing and I went the next day to talk to, uh, Mark and, and, uh, Dana just to ask how Vince was doing. And as soon as they opened the door, they're like, Oh, Hey, crabby man. Hey, Vince was looking for you. Hmm. He's, you were on the schedule 
he, he was looking for you and asked where you were so he could say hi to you. So I think it was just a thing at that one okay. where Vince just had maybe a little too much to drink and he didn't put two and two together uh, that it was me. Now, mind you as well, you can see my beard. Um, maybe he didn't recognize me again but that voice the 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 raspy john karabi voice how could you not recognize that well i didn't sing i just i was just backstage but your speaking voice is very distinguishable i think well to you (laughs) okay yeah obviously you you don't have cable tv so you 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 focus on like weird shit but whatever (laughs) no i have cable tv i have everything i'm kidding (laughs) <laughs> hey, so, okay, here's the other one I want to ask you. This has nothing to do with Molly Crew, but this is crazy. Okay, obviously, Debbie, your wife, she is the best kisser in the world, but is the second best kisser Sandra Bullock, or what is it like to kiss Sandra Bullock? That's pretty fucking awesome. No, no comment. <laughs> oh, come on. Nothing? No, you know what? You know what's funny? Sandra, Sandra Bullock was, I was so pissed more than anything because I met her when she was doing the demolition man. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a long story. I won't go into too much detail, but Tommy and I found out that uh, we, we, we were hanging with Sylvester Stallone and then he was telling us about the movie and Tommy said, Oh, who's in it? And he goes, Oh, you know, Dennis Leary and this girl named Sandy. I mean, I don't even think at that point she was like a huge star yet. Uh, we're like, okay, cool. Now you have to remember Dennis had just done a live album called no cure for cancer comedy record. And he kind of took the piss out of Motley. So we went to Dennis's trailer and knocked on his door. And as soon as he opened the door and he saw me and Tommy, he, we, we, we were all pissing ourselves laughing because he went, God, I hope you guys have a sense of humor. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we we go in, uh, you know, we go in. Tommy and Dennis immediately disappeared. I don't know why. Um, I think there might have been some foul play involved. But I was literally just sitting in this trailer with Sandra, and we were literally flirting with each other and hanging out and, you know, whatever. And then she went to do this scene and she said to me, Hey, wait right here. I'll be back. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So I start walking back to the trailer and I go to her trailer and I knock on the door and this other girl answers her wardrobe assistant, whatever. And she goes, Oh no, Sandra just left. So I turn around and I walk back to where I was. And when I went up there, uh, Bobby, our guitar tech, Bobby O, he said, um, hey, crap, that little actress chick was looking for you. And I go, where did she go? He goes, I don't know, man. I think she left. And I go, oh, fuck. Like, I really liked her. And, uh, like, there was definitely... For me, anyway, there was definitely some chemistry there. And um, so he goes, yeah, she asked me for your phone number. And I said, well, did you give it to her? And he goes, no, man, I didn't want to give it to her unless I asked you first. And I was like, oh, fuck. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? And I was so I was so bummed out because I really liked her, like right when I met her. And um, you know, so Bobby wouldn't give her the number. She left, and then she wound up doing Speed right after that movie and became, you know, a global phenomenon. So yeah, right. Well, yeah, and there was another thing so, that blew my mind. <laughs> What's that? The one that got away. Yeah, uh, that's a pretty cool one that got away, though. Um, the other thing that was, so were you actually there? Is that what happened? You were actually at the Viper Room the night that River Phoenix died? Yeah, Tommy and I went down. And, and it's and it's weird because I don't remember all of the details. And I don't even remember who we were there to see. All I remember is Tommy asked me to go with him to the Viper and we went down in a limo and he, he was, he was on the phone. I think he was on the phone with Johnny Depp and he was like, Hey dude, yeah, we're, we're, we're just getting off the freeway. Yeah. Yeah. We're coming down Sunset Boulevard. And if, if you've ever been to the Viper room, there was a door on Sunset Boulevard and then there was another door on the side street. And they made arrangements for us to pull up right in front of the club on sunset. They were going to open the door. Security guard was going to open the door, just knock on the door. He was waiting for us. As we got out of the car, we, we, you know, we walk kind of walked in between these two cars and there was this kid like kind of on the pavement, like, passed out and we literally stepped over him and we turned around and we looked at the kid but, but we couldn't see his face he was just out and we were just sitting there and we go i oh, look at this fucking rookie you know what i mean um like can't handle his alcohol look at this fucking rookie and we went into the club um, again, I couldn't even tell you who was playing, who wasn't playing. Um, Tommy and I just bellied up to the bar. We started drinking. There was this little kind of private room that Johnny had. We were in the room. And then at the end of the night, we went outside. Um, you know, we were bullshitting. He was bullshitting with Johnny. And, you know, we weren't paying attention to anything. And we literally went outside. And Christina Applegate was sitting out front. And as we walked out the door, Tommy kind of looked over to his left and he saw Christina Applegate crying. So he walked up, he walked over to her. I didn't know her. So he walked over to her and he said, Christina, how are you? She goes, hi. You know, he goes, what's wrong? And she said, oh, a friend of mine died tonight. And he was like, oh, fuck, man, I'm sorry. Like, I'm, I'm really sorry. Like, you know, are you okay? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, somehow they started talking and she said it was River Phoenix. And he, had, he was in the club and he had gone outside and he just died. And, and then it was weird. We got in the car and we started driving home. And then I looked at Tommy and I go, Dude, I think that guy that we stepped over to get into the club, I think that was him. And we went, oh, shit, fuck. Yeah, you're right. 
I think that was him because he had kind of had longer blonde hair. Was anyone like helping him at that time or was he just by himself? Just outside on the pavement by himself. Oh, shit. And I don't know if his brother came out with him and then ran back into the club. We mm. just happened to walk out. He was outside on the curb by himself. And we walked, literally stepped over him and walked into the club. I don't and think that part was in the book that you stepped over him or maybe I missed it. No, it, it's in there. Okay. Yeah. That's and, crazy. And, and, and not to be morbid or whatever, but we were looking at him like, uh, look at this fucking rookie can't handle yeah. it. Blah, 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 blah. We stepped from, went inside and, and did our thing. But, and then even when we came out and saw Christina, we didn't put two and two together yet. We got in the car, we started driving home and we were like halfway home. And, and we were like, Oh shit, dude. I think, I think that guy that we stepped over was river Phoenix. And it was like, Holy shit. Yes, you're right. Fuck. Oh my God. Dude. Like, and we were just like, kind of felt bad about it. Like, you know, maybe we could have called nine one one or uh, we didn't, we didn't put two and two together. You know what I mean? We were just yeah. kind of late to the party and the party was soon over. Oh, that's crazy. Wow. That's, there's so many things that like, uh, kind of I got wrapped up in your in your book in terms of like things that I wondered like one thing I always wondered was why did it take so fucking long to make that Motley Crue 94 record and you talk about how these guys would take all these mini vacations like they would and you were used to working with the scream where you guys would do six days a week and you had a full-time job and they would sometimes take a month off when they were recording I thought it was like they were just working so hard on this album I didn't know there was all these breaks no that was just you know but again, I think I explained in the book, they wanted to take their time. Right. Because their thing, I mean, you got to remember too, we took almost a year before it was like seven to eight months before we even started the record. Right. And their theory was, um, you know, there's that old, <laughs> there's that old thing. They, they talk about singers that they, you know, most singers have LSD lead singer disease and that's all they would talk about with vince was that he had lsd he was hard to work with he you know very in their words he was selfish he would you know whatever and so their thing was we want to take our time we want to get to know this guy we want to just really take it slow before we get out there and throw everybody to the wolves and, you know, realize that this singer's got LSD worse than the other guy that we had. So they just wanted to take their time. So there was no rush. There was no uh, sense of urgency doing the record. So the guys would literally, we would like write three or four songs and, uh, you know, we would do, three or four songs, we demoed them up. So we would take like, that would, that would take like two, two and a half weeks. And then everybody would split. Nikki would go to Hawaii uh, with his family. Tommy, I remember one time Tommy went to Turtle Island with Heather Locklear. They went down there. Uh, you know, Mick went somewhere and, you know, they, they just literally kind of 
They took their time. There were, again, there was no sense of urgency. They wanted to make sure they were doing the right thing. And yeah. I'm like, fuck, like I'm not used to working like this, especially as a singer. You start singing and your voice starts getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And then you take a month off and then you got to start over again and start building that muscle back up. Right. I fucking hated it. <laughs> well, yeah, and I just because I remember as a as a kid reading about how they said, oh, Vince doesn't want to work on music. He's not working hard enough. He wants to go race cars and we want to make music. But it, it sounded he made he put his album out first. And he had the Encino Man thing. And so I just thought that was interesting because I, I was like, oh, if they really wanted to. I think in hindsight, I think it would have helped if you guys put that album out a, a year earlier. Because I feel like time was like your enemy. Like it was the longer you waited, the more the grunge really took a stronghold. And again, you know, like I, I'm not the type of person to sit here because like, again, it's shoulda, woulda, coulda. <laughs> yeah, sure. You can't. At this stage of my life, I can't change something that happened 30 years ago. I can't. We just played the cards the way we played them. Um, it was a losing hand, and I moved on to the next the next thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I is. think it was a winning thing. I, lo I love that album. I love that era. I mean, I love it all, though. I love all the crew stuff. So I think it's a good thing. I mean, you talk about horseshoes and hand grenades and all these things that you almost made. I'm like... I think you have more accomplishments of things that you did accomplish than things that you almost accomplished. No, but again, like, and I don't want anybody to take this weird because yes, I, I mean, a day doesn't go by that. I don't wake up in the morning and go, God, here I am 35, 40 years into the music business and I'm still making music. I'm doing books. I'm still you know, touring, I'm going to go to Europe for two months at the end of the year. I'm going back to Mexico. I'm doing all this shit. Life is awesome. My thing is, and then on the flip side, which I think is kind of normal, you know, everybody, obviously, and anybody that says they don't want more is full of shit. <laughs> like, I, and I've kind of sat there and I've looked and you know, for an example, if you went to a party and there was 10 people in that party and you walked in and went, oh, my God, I'm going to go see Steven Tyler tonight in a club. Nine out of the 10 or all 10 of them would go, oh, fuck, I love Steven Tyler. I'm going to go with you. I've just been this guy that if you went to the same party and said, oh, I'm going to go see John Karabi tonight. I've been this guy that like six to seven of the people would go, hmm, why does that name sound familiar? Do you know what I mean? I've just been mm -hmm. a guy. I'm okay with it. Right. You but I'm just saying, like, I'm one of those seven that would, I would actually prefer to see you over Steven Tyler. I know that's crazy. So, like, I think that's pretty cool. You should be grateful for that. I, I, I get it. And I am grateful for it. I am grateful for the fans that I have. But it's like, I think you, you always want to do new things. You always want to try new things. You always want to branch out. You want to grow. And I just kind of feel like I've had this bubble of fans. And I, I, I'm constantly, I, I talk to my manager all the time and I go, okay, what could I do that would, you know, expand my bubble a little bit? 
and grow that fan base? Um, how do I let people, more people know that I've got new music on Spotify and Amazon and, you know, uh, Apple tunes and how, how do I do that? How do I, how do I let more people know that I've got a book out? Um, you know, so it's just, you know, a, a, as a, as an artist or as a musician, I, I want to grow. I want to be able to grow. So I'm always thinking of other things that are a little uncomfortable for me. You know, how could I, how could I do this? How can I, how can I grow? Um, I mean, even one of the things that I said, I did an acoustic record, um, you know, seven, eight, 10 years ago. And I was telling my manager, I said, you know, the more I go see some of these country guys, I realized how inspired they were by rock music. Some of these newer country guys. Yeah. You're Keith Urban's, Chris Stapleton, Eric Church, like all these cats. And I go, um, just out of curiosity, like, why wouldn't I be able to go out and do an acoustic set opening for one of those guys? It's different. It's, it's not my, it's not my, you know, and it's like, I'm kind of taking a chance, but why, why wouldn't I be able to do that? Um, I would think that father, mother, son, um, there's, you know, some of the songs that I've written crash. If I had a dime, uh, misunderstood, not misunderstood. Well, even the acoustic version of misunderstood or, or love shine, um, October morning wind. I think all of those songs would work in mm -hmm. that setting. Um, why wouldn't I be able to do that? Let's try something new. Let's try something different. Um, you know, so it's just, you know, there's, I, I'm very grateful for what I have, but again, you know, I would like I would like to be able to supersize my fries, you know. Sure, sure. Yeah, I hear you. I know you got to get out of here. Uh, last question: If you could tell me real quick, I, I was talking to Troy Patrick. I know you live with him. He told he said to ask you about Fredo the squirrel. What is Fredo the squirrel? Uh, <laughs> Troy and I lived together for a minute, and he had a girlfriend named Susie. And uh, when I was living there, there was a squirrel. I would sit out on the front step and the squirrel would literally run up to me and just sit right in front of me while I was eating. Like I'd be eating bag of chips or so I'm like, Oh, cool. You know? So I, I gave it a potato chip and um, so it ran away. And then I went into the house and I had a can of like mixed nuts. So I just reached in, grabbed a handful, closed the lid, boom. And I put these nuts out in the driveway for the squirrel. Um, and then it was funny, like <laughs> one day Susie was at the house and she opened the front door and she like freaked out. And so we come running out and the squirrel was literally on the storm door, like on the screen, literally just spread Eagle on the thing, like looking in the window, like, Where's those nuts, bitch? <laughs> we named it Fredo, and it literally came to the house every day, climbed up the storm door, and just hung out on the door until we went out and handed it a handful of nuts, and then it would eat the nuts, and it would go back up into the tree. So wow. 
it was just weird. So we had a we had a pet squirrel named Fredo. That's cool. Okay. Well, I know you got to get to the next interview. People should get the book. It's great. You have two new singles out, uh, Casa Bella and Your Own Were Sent to Me, both great songs. It, when is the next? Is there more music coming, an album or more singles? Yeah, I'm trying to get a hold of Marty now to mix the next track. And uh, let's. I want to try and get a video together for it and put it out. Um, I've got like right now when I'm done these interviews, I've literally got, you know, probably three, four, five new songs on deck that I'm literally working on lyrics and singing and recording. I'm re kind of recording myself and then I get them to a certain point and I send them to Marty. So, uh, you know, Marty's got three or four songs in the can done already. And then I've got like a bunch more on deck that, you know, I want to finish up with him. So we'll see how it goes. Okay, well, I look forward to that. You have to come back and promote that if you want to. Awesome, buddy. Okay, thanks, John. See you later. Thank you, buddy. Bye-bye. Great stuff from John Karabi. I wish we had more time, but we did cover a lot of ground in our first interview. It's number 121. Uh, so check that out if you haven't already. Get his book, Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. It's out now. And check out his new singles, Cosi Bella and Your Own Worst Enemy. Great songs. And make sure to follow John or subscribe for updates. I don't think John has a specific charity that he's working with at the moment, but he's previously worked with Toys for Tots. So if you have money left over from buying the book, throw some uh, that way or whatever your favorite charity is. Speaking of charity, I'll take your pity. If you want to follow me on social media, subscribe to my show or write me a review or rating. I'd appreciate your support. Have a great day and shoot for the moon. Mm -hmm.